five of this series on the book of Romans in the Bible's New Testament. And uh, hopefully you've been tracking uh, through this. Romans is the most comprehensive book in terms of what is Christianity, how is it explained. Uh, it, it does the best job. It's the longest, it's the most thorough, it's the most detailed. And uh, it really is something of a masterpiece, the way that the author, in this case the Apostle Paul, goes about uh, what he writes. It, it's really something, because if you read it, you'll, you'll notice he's almost, like a, he's almost like a lawyer. He's, the way that he communicates is he, he's almost anticipating his audience's responses, and he puts forth these ideas and these arguments and then he defends them and he justifies them and he uses examples and he just goes through one after the other, after the other, after the other. And you have to understand that the things that we believe and teach 2,000 years ago, uh, we get kind of numb to them and kind of inoculated to them. That's not the way that the people in the first century understood these things. For them, this was wow, this is big change, this is big news, this is, we've never heard this before, this is different from what we understood. So it, it, it's quite, um, when you grasp the significance of it, it, it really makes quite a difference. Now we're into part five here, and I want to talk to you about inner battles, inner battles. So just to review, uh, in the beginning, we talked about chapter 1, chapter 2. He talks about the good news and the bad news. And he tries to explain how sin has entered into humanity, how and why that happens and what it looks like. And it's quite stunning because he's arguing that sin has invaded and affected every single area of our lives without exception everywhere. It's, it's, it's kind of like um, you talk about a virus. How many of you have actually had COVID and you knew it was COVID? It's okay. Don't be shy. I mean, it's probably everybody has probably had it. If you haven't, well, good for you. But I mean, when you get a virus, it goes into like it's, it's in your body. It, it, it infects it. And here he's talking about a worse infection, and that is the infection of sin. So it's all, all of us are infected by it in every way. And he tries to explain, okay, here's the good news. And the good news of Jesus and his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, what that means for us. And specifically, how this justifies, that's a fancy word, us before God. So uh, some have said, to be justified before God, just as if I never sinned. That's one way to remember the word justified. It's a legal term. It means that before God, you have a right standing. He doesn't look at you with condemnation because of the death and resurrection of his son. You're set free from his wrath and from his condemnation. You say, wow, God is angry at sin. Yes, he's very angry at sin. And he has to be, his holiness demands this, and so we're justified just as if we never sinned because of what Jesus did on the cross and through the empty tomb. And then we talked about to judge or not to judge, because this sets up all kinds of questions. 
well, you know, what if you come from a religious background back then? What if you're Jewish? What if you're Jewish and you're, you're, you, you know the whole thing? You know the whole law? Can you, can you pick on the Gentile and say, oh, you know, you Gentiles, you non-Christian people, you're this and you're this and you're this? And Paul says, no, you've got to be careful when you judge. If you judge, are you breaking the very law that you're judging the other person on? And so he, he strongly warns against a kind of a hypocritical judgment. Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged, because you're looking for a speck in someone's eye, but you've got a plank in your eye. Never condemns judgment. He condemns hypocritical judgment. Part three, we talked about, well, what if, are you born that way? Are you born... If you're Jewish and you're born that way, or you're supposedly born that way, like, does that make you better than somebody else? Does that make you better than a non-Jewish person? Uh, you're, you're not born again by being born. You make a conscious decision to follow Jesus. And this is very different than the ideas of, well, I'm born a Muslim, or I'm born Jewish, or I'm born Catholic, or whatever. No, you have to make a decision to follow Jesus. And then last week, we talked about joy robbers and how Paul talks to the, the church here in Rome, by the way, a church that he never visited, at least not at that time. And he, uh, he says, you can rejoice in your sufferings. So you don't only rejoice in the good moments, you can rejoice in your sufferings because suffering produces, starts with a C, character, good, and character produces, or no, suffering starts with a P, produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character starts with H, hope, yes, and so this is, you have these things that come into life that try to rob you of the joy of your salvation. We talked about a number of those things last week. So this is his whole style. He goes with a kind of a precept or a statement, and then he anticipates the questions and the pushback that people have, and he answers those things in the way that he writes. It's like he can read their minds and then he gives some kind of an application as to why this is relevant for your life. If you get anything from this message, theology is not some boring intellectual thing for, you know, Bible nerds who never go outside and just read books all day. Theology is what changes your life. When you understand the things that you believe and you build convictions about the things you believe about God, that's what theology is. That's transformational. And in the book of Romans, you get a lot of theology and people just, it stays in their heads, but they don't realize the application. Here, you're going to see, wow, what a relevant application when it comes to inner battles. Romans chapter 5, he, he ends what we call chapter 5 anyway with this, this statement, and this is about the Old Testament, all those laws of Moses and the book of Leviticus and so on. The law was brought in so that the trespass might 
increase. He's arguing that the purpose of all those laws and the purpose of, you know, 613 or whatever laws, the purpose of those things is to show you your failure, is to show you that you can't keep them, is to show you your moral brokenness. You, nobody can keep those laws. And if you try to keep them today, as I've already said, some of them you'll get thrown in jail. I mean, they're relevant for a particular time and a particular culture, some of those civil laws and ceremonial laws and so on. But what do they do at their heart? They show you that you can't keep them. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as in sin just as sin, sorry, reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, the, the, the contrast he's setting up. You've got law, law of Moses shows you your sin, and this, it produces the need for grace, and the solution is there in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And he's going to argue with these folks, with this audience, because he's anticipating that there's going to be questions. And you see this in Romans 6. You see this in Romans 7 and into Romans 8, these questions. And he starts it with, well, what shall we say then? If this is true, and if the law and keeping the law can't save us, and if the purpose of the law is just to show us our own error and our own transgression and our own sin in order to produce this need for grace and so on, what shall we say then? There's these different questions that he anticipates that his audience is going to ask. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? A person says to themselves, hey, well, that's great. So we can just do whatever we want <laughs> because after all, grace increases when sin increases, right? And so he's, he pushes back against that. Another question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, same kind of, same kind of argument, you know. Well, the law, is it relevant anymore? Well, then why don't we just sin because we're all these excuses to to sin, he's trying to anticipate. And is the law sinful? And so these questions he, he answers, all right? Now, part of the answer is the theology that, that changes your life and my life today. Part of the answer. And his answer, uh, in, in general, to all of these questions goes like this. It's in Romans chapter 6 and starting at verse 1. Here's the question, shall we still go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now watch what he says, and it, it drops by so fast, but we rarely think about it and apply it to 21st century life, even though it's always there, always around us. By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know? Don't you know? Know what? That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized means simply to dip. You take, um, back then you would take a, 
For example, an article of clothing, if you wanted to dye it a different color, you'd take it and you'd dip it into a dish that had that color. This is the word baptized. To, to, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were baptized into his death. This is theology. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He goes on. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united, note that word, united, united, with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might also be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Okay. You, you, I can tell this is going in one ear and one out the other, and this is the problem. It's theology. What he's talking about here is so relevant for today and so revolutionary for the people back then, but it goes by so fast. What he's talking about here is an, your identity. He's talking about who you are are and who you believe yourself to be. And here he's arguing, you are united with Christ in his death, which is a death by crucifixion, in his burial, and in his resurrection. You are united with him. And that's supposed to affect the way that you live. It's theology, you say, how can it affect the way that I live? You know, in, in Galatians chapter 2, he says the same thing. And by the way, when you read the book of Romans, you should read the book of Galatians alongside it. Just a tip for you, sometimes we call this the literature of protest. Galatians and Romans, uh, historically, the Protestant Reformation, based on the idea that people are not saved by works of the church and doing penance and paying the priest and so on. No, we're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. And so these two books were used by the reformers, uh, uh, Galatians and Romans. We call this the literature of protest. Galatians chapter 2, I have been, this is his identity, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. Galatians 3. Uh, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized, there's that word again, into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is an identity that he is talking about. You're to identify yourself with him. Now, this is very different than anything that these people would have heard or understood in that time. Because what you're talking about there 
is Jesus atones for our sins. He spends five chapters trying to teach on this. He is the atonement, the covering for our sins. Uh, we are justified by faith in him before God. But now he's saying you are to identify with him in death, in burial, and in resurrection. That is who you are. You identify with him. Now, back in the Old Testament, when you had atonement for sin, and we looked at this a bit last week, uh, the biggest day in the calendar for the Jewish people was the Day of Atonement. It still is the most serious, most solemn day in, in, in Judaism. And in the Day of Atonement, if you read in Leviticus chapter 16, you're going to see a whole detail and a whole process as to how this thing was to occur. And you have a whole series of sacrifices that are offered in one way or another, both for the priest who's doing the work, for the priest's family, and for the whole nation, for the whole community of Israel. It's quite elaborate. You've got two rams, one for the priest and his family, one that is for the people, and actually in some ways for the temple, to, to cleanse the temple. You have uh, a bull that was for the priest and his family, and you have two goats. Uh, if you go up to La Goudrelle there, you're going to see some sheep and some goats. <laughs> Back in the Old Testament, I mean, goats were, and sheep, these things were used in their whole system, in their whole system of sacrifices. And you read, it's quite elaborate. It, it, it's quite sobering. Um, you would have blood that was sprinkled on the, on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant and so on in a certain kind of way. And then there was this concept that the temple had to be, there had to be atonement for the temple because it could be that the presence of the sin in the community could affect the temple. And then you had this scapegoat where the, the sins of the people were confessed by the high priest and he put his hands on this goat. He wouldn't kill it, but he would say, Send it out into the wilderness alive. This, this concept of the sins being transferred to this goat is quite, quite elaborate. But in no way, shape, or form are you told that you're supposed to identify with these sacrifices of atonement and whatnot. You, this is never taught anywhere, anywhere in the Old Testament that your identity now changes and you identify, you are united with the one who made atonement for you. This is a whole new deal, a whole new covenant or New Testament. That's why we use these terms, because this changes everything. When Jesus at the Last Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So he's shifted everything here, and now you're supposed to identify with him when you come to faith in him. You identify. It's not just, well, Jesus died on the cross, and it, you know, my sins are atoned for, great, that's wonderful, la, la, la. No, no, no. Your life changes because who you are changes. And who you believe yourself to be 
is going to dictate how you live. Your actions will always eventually follow suit. Whatever you identify with or whoever you identify with, ultimately, that's how you will behave. You can hide it for as long as you want to, but eventually it's going to come out. And it is amazing, folks. You look at a person, you know, the old saying is true. You'd never judge a book by its cover. That old saying you learned in grade school is still true, folks. Because sometimes you see people and they look like perfection on the outside. Their life looks perfect. Their family looks perfect. They look like the model of, wow, you know, just what a terrific person, what a terrific life, la, 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 la. And then you see something happens in their life and, you, and you're shocked. You say, how could, that, that, how could that person do that or say that or be that? Be, you're shocked, but that, it's no shock to that person. Because that person has a belief system and an identity on the inside as to who they believe themselves to be, and you do too. You have a constant narrative in the background. You don't even know it's there sometimes, but it's telling you who you are. And you're believing whatever about who you are, and that eventually leads into your actions and into your life. You cannot stop that from happening no matter how hard you try. So it's critical that you have a right sense of identity. And here, we're being taught what you are to identify with now is not yourself. It's Jesus, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. The implications here into the 21st century are stunning. If you're not identifying with Christ... The question becomes, what are you identifying with or who? Because it's not him. It's something or someone else. And presumably, this, this kind of identification is not as good as identifying with Christ. He's, the, the author here is setting up an idea that this is the way that you are supposed to live, and therefore, if you're not living this way, there's a problem. Let me show you what people identify with today, and this is probably more and more so today than it has been uh, in recent years, I think. Uh, first and foremost, feelings. What are kids being taught today? Parents, grandparents, what are they being taught? What you feel is who you are. That is a terrifying, put yourself into a young person's shoes, folks. That is a terrifying thought for a young person. What you feel, don't ignore it, don't hide it, don't deny it. What you feel, that's who you are and that's what you are. And what they're taught is be honest with your feelings, with those impulses, those urges, those thoughts, those feelings, because that's who you trust, that's what you trust, and that's who you are. My goodness, a young person's feelings are all over the place, folks. They're like a wild roller coaster. They go up, they go down, they go left, they go right, they go in directions that don't exist. I mean, and, and yet they're being taught that's 
who you are. Wow, that could be a little bit dangerous. Well, you have this inclination in this way or this. Oh, wow, that's who you are. The things that you think, that's who you are. The way that you look, that's who you are. Wow, folks, the amount of attack. I, I sympathize with young people. The amount of attack that happens, not only in their schools, folks. The, the messages of the culture and the media, you've got to look this way and you've got to talk this way. And man, they pick up these devices in their hands and they're pummeled with message after message after message who you are is what you look like. If you look this way, you better change it because that's who you are. Wow, what a terrifying message to hear as a young person. But that's what they're being taught. Your physical appearance, that's who you are. Your ethnicity, that's who you are. Well, I'm black. Well, I'm white. Well, I'm Latino. Well, I'm whatever. I'm biracial. Well, that's who are that's your identity is in the color of your skin and in your ethnicity and that could lead to some problems that could lead to some chips on some shoulders that could lead to some some I mean when you tell a person that and when a person believes that in a broken world and in a broken society and in a culture like ours that's the belief system that we have what about materialism? Who you are is what you have. You know, I joked about it before. You got a Tesla or you got a Toyota, you know? Like, who you are is what you have. Well, are you, do you have this kind of salary? Do you have this kind of house? Do you have this kind of this and this kind of that? Because your bottom line is who you are. That's your identity. Well, I'm married. Well, I'm single. Well, I'm divorced. Well, I'm married three times and divorced three times. Well, I'm, well, that's who you are. And Paul would say, no, you are not. No, you are not. And I will, I'll touch on it here because it's simmering under the surface. It's the elephant in the room here. Uh, the whole sex and sexuality thing Thing is now, wow, this is front, right in the front of everybody right now. So a person, again, these feelings, well, I feel this way. I've, 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 I feel like I'm in the wrong body, you know, a gender dysphoria. I feel this way. Well, that's who you are. You now, by cultural standards, at least in the West, because of your feelings, can determine your gender now. This is what people are being taught. So, wow, if a person has this feeling and this feeling and this feeling, well, that is who you are, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the way you're designed or created or your God made you that way or you evolved that way or whatever. It's in your DNA. That's who you are. The whole, and it's like, it's, it's like you have no free will, you have no choice. It's all predestined, it's all determined by DNA. By the way, even the atheists will say that. The, the, the modern atheists, you read Dawkins and you read these people, they will tell you there is no such thing as free will. No such thing. 
It's all predetermined by chemicals and DNA. You think you have free will, you don't. It's all predetermined. My goodness, what a way to live your life, folks. The New Testament would strongly argue against this and say, no, your identity is not in what you feel. Your identity is not in your money. It's not in your skin color. It's not in your physical appearance. It's not in your sexuality or your sex or all this stuff. My goodness, we worship it, folks. We've turned ourselves into little gods, and especially that realm, for whatever reason now, this whole sex and sexuality thing, we worship it, folks. It has become a deity in our culture. Paul and the New Testament and Jesus would look at this and say, no, you don't identify in any of that stuff. What you identify in is Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that's what changes a person's life because, and he'll give the practical application here, he says, well now, if this is true, if you're identifying with him, and by the way, when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross. He didn't swoon, folks. He didn't pass out. He was dead, physically dead. We even have medical evidence for this. Even in medical journals, they'll tell you the whole thing of, the, of how this crucifixion happened and all of this. And nobody disagrees with this anymore, folks. Back in the 50s and the 60s, they used to espouse this idea of the swoon theory that Jesus passed out on the cross and then he got into the, the tomb and somehow the cool air revived him and he persuaded the world that he was gloriously raised from the dead. Folks, this is nonsense. He was dead on that cross, fully dead. Why is that important? Because when you come to him, that old you dies. It doesn't swoon. It doesn't pass out. It dies. All your ways of thinking and understanding and your perceived identity, all this stuff dies is what's being taught here. And because of this, because you identify with his death, because you identify with his burial, because you identify with his resurrection, now there are certain choices that you are liberated to make. You are free now to make certain choices. And by the way, when we baptize people in water, this is what we're illustrating. We're illustrating the person identifies with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. A few months ago, I put a challenge out on a Sunday morning that there's people who need to be baptized. I've got a person. I've got a person who came to Christ, I would say, within the last year, year plus or so, and this guy's going to be baptized in water, but there's plenty more in here. There's other people in this room, and you've never been baptized in water doesn't matter your age as long as you understand what you're being baptized for. I'm working with a couple of other churches, going to try and piggyback on one of their baptismal services so that we can baptize people. Not sure when it's going to happen. Probably in the spring sometime is typically when they're done. But that's what we do. We illustrate this change in identity. This person is changed. This person identifies with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus to new life. Well, but the person came from this background, or the person got this, you know, this whole gender dysphoria, or the person's white, or the person's black, or the person's divorced, or the person's this. All of that stuff, 
your identity changes. Death, burial, and resurrection. And when you believe this, and when this becomes a conviction, you now have the freedom to make certain choices. Romans chapter 6, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we no longer, uh, for we, we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. This is what you can now do. Well, you say, I used to do drugs. I used to do alcohol. I was hooked on porn. I was this, I was this. Count yourselves dead to sin. You don't, you, you're not owned by sin anymore. You're not owned by your feelings. You're not owned by your thoughts. You're not owned by your DNA. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Wow, that is a total change in identity. You do not have to be a slave anymore to sin. Slave, slavery, very common in the Roman Empire. Most of the people were slaves. Meant you were owned by somebody. Extremely common. Well, he's saying here, no longer slaves to sin. You don't, you, you count yourselves now dead to it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body anymore. That you will obey what it wants. It's evil desires. You mean I can? Yes, you can. Talk to the average person who is not a Christian. Talk to the, your average coworker, student, neighbor, whatever. If they're being honest with you about who they are and about their lives, there's something in their life that they can't stop doing. There's an attitude, there's a behavior, there's something in there, and they can't stop doing it. And no matter how much they try, they keep on going on this broken record, these inner battles. And what he's saying here is, now because your identity has changed, you count yourself dead to that stuff. And you're alive in Christ. You do not let sin reign in your body. You now have the choice to say, no way. I don't want it anymore. That's why you see it often happens when people come from uh, lifestyles and things where they're addicted to whatever Oftentimes, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, but oftentimes there's a break with that behavior. And the person says, why is it that now I seem to have the power and the ability to not do such and such anymore because I have become a Christian? Why is that? That's because there's an identity shift that happens. And Paul wants you to apply it to your life. Do not let sin reign. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin. You mean I can? Yes, you can. Don't. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin anymore. You have been set free from it. Rather, you offer yourselves to God. So before it's sin, what can I do for you? And now it's God, what can I do for you? See the shift? And people don't even realize that if your identity is in something else besides the risen Savior, that ultimately is going to lead you in a path of dissatisfaction and destruction. 
Because your worldview is going to be based on yourself or your feelings or whatever the culture tells you. No, it's got to be based on Christ. And when you have this, you have liberty. Offer yourselves to God, not to sin. You have the freedom to do that. Did you know that? And a lot of people don't. A lot of times people, even in churches, struggle privately with these inner battles because the identity shift never got applied to their life. They were never taught, hey, smarten up, stop identifying the old way and identify yourself in Jesus and then you're going to start to see change. So I'm here to tell you that theology is transformational in your life. If you grip it and if it becomes a conviction, folks, you can step into your school, young people, and you're being told all these messages and you're dealing with bullying and all of this stuff. You can stand tall and say, I'm, I'm in Christ, man. I'm, I'm in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Go ahead and say what you want. What you say about me is not who I am. Well, I feel this way. Well, I feel this way. Well, that's not who I am. Who I am is in Christ. It's in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Your feelings will work themselves out over time. Trust me. Never, never make a God of how you feel. Never. That, that's not the point of feelings, folks. They're there to, to they're, they're like warning bells. They're like dashboard meters. They're things like this, but they go up and down, up and down, up and down. I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent, folks, but I really think that there are people, and that's, you, you never realized you're not a slave to what you feel. You're not. You become a slave to who? To Christ. Sin is not me working for you anymore. I'm working now for God. And that can transform your life. If the musicians would come, we're going to just close in prayer here. want to pray for you and give you some time at the end here. You can talk with one another. There are things out, out in the foyer that you can do. But folks, I, I really feel strongly this question of identity. I've taught on it in churches for years and years because I've seen, I've seen Christians say things and Christians do things that are, wow, where in the world did that come from? And it came from that battle inside when the person did not understand who they now are in Christ and apply it to their lives. God is watching you, and he wants you to live in such a way that shows that he's in you. This is what pleases him when he sees, wow, this person has this conviction about me. This person then worships me and puts me first and identifies with me. That pleases God and that sets you free. Father, I pray for each person in the room this morning, people who are online, in the name of Jesus, inside and outside, Lord, may we shine the light of 
Jesus. Uh, may this not be just theology for us. May Jesus not just be on a cross and a tomb and then in the heavens, but may he be in our hearts and our identity flow through and live through him. Lord, I pray for young people who are in this room or online and God, they're told these conflicting messages over and over again. Would you set people free, Lord? I pray for those who are in families and couples and husbands and wives and singles who are out there in the workplace and the workforce and being told all of these things and the culture shouts at us one message but Lord may we believe what you say about us that we are children of God not uh, born of the flesh or of bloods or of natural descent but born of you that we would be able to look ourselves in the eye and say I am a child of God and believe it Lord may you impact people's lives and behavior and thoughts Lord and transform us from the inside out we pray together in Jesus name amen amen God bless you today take your time before you leave remember to pick up your kids remember to check them out uh, you can buy tickets for the sugar shack I'm so much looking forward to that event God bless you have a great Sunday today